Thank you, Lord. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Welcome. To these are the words, I'm Eric Grun, and I will continue with the reading of false beliefs. The Serpent Seed Doctrine and Kenite Myth. And uh, I think the Lord just showed me in a flash, real quick, I saw a flash of A.W. Tozer's book, The Holy Spirit. And I will read that probably later, soon. But uh, who knows, I think I'll, I'll probably read it next. But uh, it seemed to have been like just a glitch when I opened this book. Uh, I suddenly saw A.W. Tozer's book, Holy Spirit. So. Okay, we'll continue with the Serpent Seed Doctrine and Kenite Myth False Beliefs.
All right, let's see. Every time um, I open this app, the Kindle app, <laughs> um, it starts me over at the beginning again, so I have to scroll through. Okay, last time we talked about the Gospel of Philip. Um, let's see, chapter 2. Picking up on chapter 2, the Old Testament and the Serpent Seed Doctrine. If we can agree as Christians that the Bible is our ultimate authority, uh, real, real quick, I want to give credit to... Um, I want to give credit to Martin's Garden. <clears throat> this is um, music by Shiva Light. Martin's Garden, Samsara, album mix, side dub, side chill, world bass. Really cool sound and uh, especially cool, very cool graphics that they have. I wish you could see it, but you can enjoy the music. Okay, chapter two. The Old Testament and the Serpent Seed Doctrine. If we can agree as Christians that the Bible is our ultimate authority, then we can move on to how followers of the Serpent Seed Doctrine attempt to use the Bible to support their belief that a sexual encounter occurred between Satan, Ha-Satan, Satan, and Eve, Hava. Even though some fringe Judaic groups use the Serpent Seed Doctrine, most American Christians will more, more than likely encounter this idea online through a person who is knowingly or unknowingly following some, many, or all of the teachings from a group referred to as the Christian Identity Movement. Due to this, as we go through the following verses in the Bible, <clears throat> the focus will be on how those who fall into this category view these areas of the Bible. The Twin Theory. After reading the following verse found in Genesis, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived <laughs> and bare Cain. I'm sorry for laughing, but I just had a wave of uh, bliss. And she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. Abel. And Abel, I might interject real quick. Abel is very a familiar sound. If you notice, Abel, and it says later on that his blood was crying out to the Lord, that his blood spilt into the earth, was crying out to the Lord. And Abel is the most, is the, is the, is the, the majority portion of Babel or Babel. Abel is Babel. Okay, or Babel, Babel, or Baal. Baal. As Baal is the son of El in the Canaanite religion, so Abel, or Abaal, or Abel, is also the son of the fallen Adama. 
the fallen man. Okay, I, I just want to interject that real quick. Okay, anyway, I have gotten a man from the Lord, and she again bear his name, his brother, I bear his brother, Abel. One may wonder how anyone could get around the explicitness of this verse, which clearly tells us Cain was from Adam and Eve. <clears throat> However, Serpent Seed Doctrine supporters believe they have found such a path. They explain the text does not describe a sexual encounter before Abel's birth, as it does later concerning Seth's birth. Due to this, supporters conclude this verse is telling us Cain and Abel were twins. Supporters go on to distinguish what type of twins Cain and Abel were. They believe they were uh, dizygotic, dizygotic twins. This type of pregnancy occurs when two separate sperm fertilize two different eggs. In most cases, the two separate sperm originate with the same man. However, there have been cases, although extremely rare, when the sperm has come from two different men. By pointing out this type of pregnancy, supporters assert both Satan and Adam had relations with Eve, which resulted in Satan being the father of Cain and Adam being the father of Abel. Okay, the idea of Cain and Abel being twins is interesting. <laughs> it is it is of no real consequence, however, to a non-supporter of the serpent seed doctrine. But of what consequence is it to the supporter, one may ask. This is my my asking, you know, Eric Grooms asking. <laughs> this is not written in the book. So anyway, I'll continue with the book. One can just as easily believe Cain and Abel were twins, but twins from the same father. Adam, plus, if we are looking for patterns within the text, then the idea of Cain coming from Adam and Eve fits the twin theory since Adam and Eve's sexual union is described right before Cain's birth. The pattern begins with the couple's sexual encounter followed by a birth announcement of their child. This same pattern is repeated with Cain and his wife in Genesis 4.17, and yet supporters do not question that the Enoch of Genesis 4.17 was Cain's son. Let us, conception and birth, let us look at another pattern within the text. The Bible informs us that Adam and Eve had relations and she conceived. Eve did not conceive before this. It is only after Adam knew her that she was with child. The text does not say Eve conceived, then Adam knew her, and she conceived again. This is what would have occurred in a dizygotic twin situation. The text, however, does not provide any evidence for this type of pregnancy. Date night. Let us also remember that Adam and Eve were driven from paradise before their sexual encounter with each other occurred. The text does not tell us how much time elapsed 
but we can assume some time passed before the couple felt comfortable enough in their new surroundings. Forced out of paradise, Adam and Eve had no shelter or food. They did have ground to till, but we do not know the condition of this land. In such a circumstance, you would set out to find the essentials of food and shelter. You would not be interested in having a date night. Remember, all of creation had changed. We can theorize that animals had already become predators. Therefore, in the midst of all this uncertainty and fear, it is difficult to believe Adam and Eve immediately had sex after being pushed out of paradise. This makes the dizygotic twin idea even less prob uh, probable since an egg has only 12 to 24 hours to be fertilized. This would not have provided enough time for Abel to be the dizygotic twin. Uh, I'm going to interject again here. Also, I don't think creation changed at all. Um, I think it doesn't say the Bible. It doesn't say that really in the Bible that creation changed. It says that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. So, and the Garden of Eden cannot be known while we are in our sinful nature, our fallen nature. We are born into this flesh. This flesh body is of the sinful nature, of the fallen nature. And only by the, the grace of Christ Jesus, His blood, His pure atonement sacrifice, uh, can the Holy Spirit inhabit or habitate or dwell in this body. It is only through the redemption of the sacrifice of the second Adam, the second and last Adam, that Jesus Christ is the second and last Adam, it says in scripture. And Jesus Christ, it's only through the sacrifice and the atonement of, of uh, his blood, because he is the Lamb of God, and the last and uh, sufficient sacrifice that we ever need, um, it is only through him that the Holy Spirit is able to dwell in the bodies of mankind. And this is the uh, redeeming work that the Holy Spirit cleanses us and purifies us and um, brings us through a process of sanctification as soon as we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and come to faith in Jesus, we accept the the Holy Spirit dwelling in our in our bodies, in our hearts, in our bodies, literally. And throughout the rest of our lives, we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So that when we die and shed this mortal flesh, we may rise up to meet Jesus Christ in the heavens and and inherit eternal life forever. That is the point of faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be, may be saved, might be saved, and that we might in, inherit eternal life and the rights to be called sons and daughters of the living God. 
the only God, the only God. Short of that, and if we do not come to faith in Christ Jesus, we do not ascend. There is no ascension apart from Christ Jesus. He is the only one who has ascended, and he is the only one who can ascend. And apart from him, no one else can ascend. No, there's no other ascension. Um, there might be altered states of consciousness that we get through drugs and through other various spirits um, and through uh, alcohol, alcohols of various spirits or other spirits that are non-related to alcohol. And we can come into altered states of consciousness, but we do not ascend apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Not if you are not if you are Jewish, neither if you are um, neither if you are Muslim or Buddhist. There's no other ascension. There's no other ascension. If, if, no matter what other name you conjure up, there is no other ascension apart from Jesus Christ. So he is the only way to heaven. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to divinity. He is the only way to reclama- reclamation or uh, 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 reinstate, reinstating, restoring the divine state of mankind. Um, so Adam and Eve, uh, the creation didn't change, as the book is saying. Creation was always, the fallen creation was always this way. This was the fallen state. And this was the fallen state, as uh, as would occur as would occur if Adam and Eve decided to do what they did and partake of eating of the tree of death. Remember, God created that tree and put it in the garden, and he told he he told he didn't need the serpent to be there. He told Adam and Eve to not eat of the fruit of that tree. Even if they just decided to eat of the fruit of the tree without the serpent there, they would have fallen into the into the fallen state because they would have decided to disobey God. The entire idea has nothing to do with what the fruit is, has nothing to do with who the serpent is, has nothing to do with what the tree is, has to do with disobedience to God. They decided to go away from God away from dwelling with God and they decided their fate was to die because God told them that they would die and they decided to die essentially so in the garden they would have remained immortal but out of the garden they had to be mortal so that is what it means to be in the garden and out of the garden in the garden means you're immortal and you have eternal life, and you're able to eat from the tree of life, uh, which is communion with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ very much was the God, is the God in that garden, who was dwelling with them, who was walking with them in the garden. He is the one who was walking in the garden with them, with Adam and Eve. And they decided to say, no, we choose death, we're going to leave the garden. So basically, uh, Jesus, God, uh, Yeshua, uh, or Jehovah, the same God, the one, the one 
God, he put an angel at the entrance of that garden, and nobody could get through and pass that angel except until Yeshua or Jesus Christ came to give his life for to be able to give access. And so on the cross he said to the he said to the thief, he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Meaning the doors of the garden of paradise were being opened up again to mankind. And guess what? Who was the first man who, uh, apart from Jesus, who entered paradise? It was the thief next to him on the cross who repented, even on the cross while he was dying and he was already sentenced. That Listen to this. This is important. Once, you, once he is already sentenced, he was sentenced to death by man, by fallen man. Even if you are sentenced to death by fallen man, you are able to repent. You are still able to repent. Even on the cross, being tortured, while uh, the, being convicted of your, of, of, of your sin and your crime, by fallen man, even if you are convicted of a crime by fallen man, even if you are on death row, even if you are dying, in the middle of dying, you are able to say, Remember me, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom. I am a sinful person. I am a sinful person and I deserve to die. If you are repentant in that manner, even if you're on your deathbed, the Lord says to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Because he repented and he believed in Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He believed Jesus was who he said he was. And he believed Jesus was able to uh, do and uh, you know what he said he would do. And he believed that in the truth that he deserved death. That the wages of his sin was death. And that he, he received Jesus Christ by telling him, what he said remember me when you're in paradise you know and uh he he apologized he said i deserve what we i deserve to be here because i i deserve to be i i I committed the crimes that i committed so that was the first man who entered into paradise entered into the garden of eden Ever since Adam was kicked out. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out. Okay, so nothing changed. Everything, everything died. Nothing changed. Everything died. In other words, as long as we are in this sinful nature, we are, this this sinful nature was death. Was death. But, Jesus Christ conquered death. And when we are in Jesus Christ, we are in the Holy Spirit, then we are in eternal life. Okay, so I'm going to continue with the book anyway. Okay, date night. Okay. You would be interested in having, you would be, you would not be interested in having a date night. Remember, all of creation had changed. We can theorize that animals had already become predators. Therefore, in the midst of all this 
uncertainty and fear, it is difficult to believe Adam and Eve immediately had sex after being pushed out of paradise. This makes the dizygotic twin idea even less probable since an egg has only 12 to 24 hours to be fertilized. This would not have provided enough time for Abel, for Abel able to be the dizygotic twin. Okay, next section. From the Lord. As mentioned previously, Midrash records the beliefs of Rabbi Zeera, who asserted the serpent seed idea. This rabbi's commentary so twists Genesis 4.1 beyond recognition that he renders it. Quote, as it is said, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. Genesis uh, 4.1. What is the meaning of knew? Uh, he, in brackets, he knew that she had conceived. So, this rabbi renders it, uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, knew that his wife conceived. <laughs> okay, by distorting Genesis 4.1 in such a way, the rabbi was free to claim Satan got to Eve first and Adam knew of it. The need to contort the original text in such a way demonstrates its original message does not promote what the rabbi wanted it to endorse. Therefore, it was necessary for him to alter it. Rabbi Zaira also had a bad habit of changing words within verses to suit his needs. He alters Genesis 4.1, I have gotten a man from the Lord, to I have gotten a man with the Lord. Unfortunately, when commentators begin to rearrange words or simply change one word with the, within the Bible without offering an explanation as to why they are doing so, such as saying the modification will draw us closer to the original Hebrew meaning, then frankly, they are no longer viewing the text as the final authority. Instead, they are placing themselves in the seat of authority. This alteration provided by Rabbi Zaira allows him to claim Eve conceived Cain with Satan, a supposed Lord. The original translation provides what Eve is trying to convey in this verse, which is that she is praising God. I have gotten a man from the Lord. There is no great mystery here or underlying meaning. How many mothers have said the very same thing after the birth of their child? Praise God. I have gotten a child from the Lord. Or in other words, the Lord has blessed us with a child. Cain the ignored. In Genesis 4.25, Eve continued her celebration at the birth of her third son, Seth. Her joy was twofold since Seth became a substitute for Abel, whom Cain murdered. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Oh, for God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Because Eve made no mention of Cain being replaced by Seth as Abel was, the suggestion is made by some 
that this is a hint that Cain was never Adam's son. However, the focus of this verse is on Seth replacing Abel. It also would make no sense to mention Seth replacing Cain since Cain was not murdered and did not need replacing. <laughs> Supporters also tried to assert Cain was not from Adam by pointing out that Cain was not listed in Adam's genealogy found in Genesis 5, 1 through 32. The fact is Cain may not be found in Adam's genealogy that follows Seth's line. But Adam is found in Cain's lineage, which begins at Genesis 4, 1 and ends at verse 24. Some stories are mixed in with this record of lineage that separates Cain's birth with the rest of his genealogy. But having stories interlaced with a genealogical record is a practice found elsewhere in the Bible. See Chronicles 4, 9 through 10 and 5, 18 through 22. In the book of Genesis, this record describes Cain's origin from Adam and Eve and then later describes Cain's descendants. Supporters use Supporters use Genesis 4, 1 through 24 as a genealogical account when it comes to Abel, but deny it as such when it comes to Cain. This is a nonsensical viewpoint. Another area of the Bible that supporters look, it, look to is a portion of Genesis 5, where Adam begets Seth in his likeness and image. Supporters focus on how the text never describes Cain in this way. To supporters, this means Adam was not Cain's father. However, if we read the first part of Genesis 5, it becomes clear that the Holy Spirit is simply contrasting between what God created and what Adam created. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made him, made he him male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created and Adam lived in a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth Supporters believe the phrase, and Adam lived an 130 years, and begat a son in his own likeness, and after his image, and called his name Seth, is the text telling us Adam finally had a son of his own since Cain was of Satan. Supporters see this verse as expressing something positive. However, it is not a positive thing that Adam made a son in his, in his image. It is a negative thing. This area of text is telling us God created man in his image. In other words, Adam and Eve were sinless when God formed them. After the fall, Adam made a son in his likeness who, unfortunately, inherited a sin nature due to the fall. The text is comparing what God created with what Adam produced. Adam's creation was made in his sinful image. It was no longer in God's perfected image. And so also I want to say that, uh, so Cain's lineage 
uh, did not go on for a long time. It stopped at a certain point because Cain was the first murderer and he murdered his brother and he did not deserve for his line to go on. He did not deserve for his lineage to go to continue. And so therefore Seth's lineage continued through Noah and continued well up into uh, even Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was of the lineage of Seth and Adam. And so he, he can trace his, his lineage directly to the first man. And so it, he is called son of man. Anyway, okay. This comparison between what God and Adam created becomes extremely important later in the New Testament where it tells us all who are from Adam, which is all of us carry his sin nature and are in need of Christ. Notice how the text calls Adam and Eve, Adam, in Genesis 5-2, to set up the explanation later provided in 1 Corinthians 15-22 and 15-45, which reinforces this point. In case you're wondering, 15 is the chapter, 22 is the verse, and 15 chapter 45 is the verse, which reinforces this point. If you do not support or if you know nothing of the New Testament, you are going to have other explanations for why Genesis 5, 1 through 3, chapter 5, one, verses 1 through 3, describes Seth as being made in Adam's image. This is why the serpent seed doctrine originated with those within Judaism. Okay, this is why the serpent seed doctrine originated with those within Judaism. They did not accept the New Testament or its teachings. Beyond the spiritual meaning of this area of text, the technical reason Genesis 5 does not mention Cain is that this chapter begins Adam's ge genealogy through Seth. There, is, there was no reason to mention Cain at this point since Genesis 4, 1 through 24 already covered Cain's genealogy. Cain was not the subject or the focus of Genesis 5. Due to this, supporters attempt to, to take advantage of Cain's absence in these verses by trying to turn it into something it is not. To illustrate this point further, imagine you have two sons, Ed and Bruce. Now picture yourself writing a biography about your two sons. You first write a, a paragraph about Bruce, and then you go on to write another paragraph about Ed. Midway through writing about Ed, you note, oh, by the way, I also have a son named Bruce. It would make no sense to do this. You've, you've already covered Bruce in the preceding paragraph. This is exactly what supporters of the Serpent Seed Doctrine are requiring these verses to do for Cain and Seth. They want an additional proclamation of Cain being Adam's son. But a previous verse had already explicitly explained he was his child. Genesis 4.1 could not be any clearer on the subject of Cain being Adam's son. Adam knew his wife and she gave birth to Cain. This is a clear, simple reading of the text and it is the meaning God wants to get across to us. Okay, and I want to I want to note that Adam and Eve were created as one. And, and before Eve was Eve, Adam 
I, uh, okay, I've seen an angel, okay? Whether you believe it or not, I have seen an angel. And the angel's face was flashing male and female faces. And the angel was made of a beautiful light, beautiful, beautiful light, golden white light, golden white light. I mean, I, I, I can only uh, say that I saw male and female faces flashing before my eyes of light, of pure light, gold, golden and, and white light. And, um, and I realized <clears throat> that God created Adam like that. I realized that God created Adam as a perfect male and female in one body, in one spirit, perfect body, uh, sinless, sinless. But uh, the Lord separated the female part and called the female part Hava or Eve. And so Adam had a partner. So then Adam was the male part and Eve was the female part, separated, but they were still one in the garden. But they were they were one, they were still one, but they were two. Okay? And so they can see each other face to face because all the other creatures in the garden had partners and had had mates. And so they were able to uh, they were not alone. And so Adam, God saw that Adam was singular. And so he put him into a deep sleep. And then the rest of the story, you know the story as it goes. Then he pulled Adam, or, or pulled Eve, I'm sorry, pulled Eve rather, out of Adam's side, out of his ribs, out of his side. Um, and so Adam and Eve were perfect human beings, male and female. And they were originally one in unison, and they were then separated, and they were also one in partnership. But then when they decided to fall or decided to choose death, then all of creation fell with them. All of creation uh, became a sinful nature because it was away from God, because it was rebellious to God. And Satan wants us to believe, Satan from the beginning wanted mankind, Adam and Eve, to believe that um, he has power and he has authority over man. And so Adam and Eve decided to give him that power. And Jesus Christ took back that power. And so Satan does not have power over mankind anymore. Um, if we sin, we decide to sin. If we decide to go toward Christ and go toward God through Christ in faith, uh, faith in Christ, then we are headed toward paradise once again. But if we decide to sin, to head toward our sin and the ways that God despises, and the, the way that is revolting to God and that uh, can that keeps us apart from God, keeps us separated from God, 
then we are heading towards our death and destruction once again. And so there is a second death. The first death is the flesh. The second death is the spirit. And we can avoid the second death of our spirit. In other words, in eternity in hell, we can avoid this second death by turning our lives to Christ Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to read. Okay. Um, this is a clear, simple reading of the text, and it is the meaning God wants to get across to us. This faulty reasoning of the absence of Cain equating to him not being Adam's son continues with such verses as Luke 3, 3 8, 38, and 1, first, or 1 Chronicles 1, 1. Luke 3.38 is the tail end of Christ's genealogy and is the last part and as and the last part states quote Seth which was the son of Adam which was the son of God it is clear why Luke 3.38 does not include Cain this verse as well as 1 Chronicles 1.1 deals with with Adam's line through Seth. Since Cain murdered Abel and God drove Cain away, Seth needed to carry on the line. This genealogical line ultimately led to Christ. This genealogical line ultimately led to Christ. This is why the Holy Spirit was interested in recording Seth's genealogical record and not Cain's record. Trees symbolize men. Okay, I'm going to save this part for the next time, for next episode. So, so far, we're talking about uh, the way that uh, the scripture can be read and uh, if you just take things as it is written uh, you'll understand things a lot more than a lot of um, people who interpret scripture fall into the trap of uh, making the scripture um, read in a way that they want it to read or in the way that it's different from the text that it actually reads and, uh, you know, using our imaginations to try to make things up and to try to insert our own will and our own imagination and our own ideas into something that belongs to us only by God, only through Christ, only through God himself, since it is God's word. It is God's word. It is not our word, you know. And so if we want to be in God's word, we have to take things as they are. Um, I'm going to read from the Zohar a little bit. Okay. Okay, the last time I, I uh, left off, this, this last group of writings was composed around 1300. The first two strata, on the other hand, are all are in all probability by a single author whose development from the composition of the first to the second is still clearly traceable 
and thus it becomes gratuitous to assume any break in the identity of the person who stands behind the whole production. The secret midrash, which has hitherto been customarily regarded as the latest part of the whole work because of its free use of philosophical terminology as well as its partial use of the Hebrew language, is in all probability the earliest part. Behind the whole stands, behind the whole stands the living personality of a mystic who, starting with the philosophical and Talmudic education of his time, lets himself be ever more deeply drawn to the mystical and Gnostic ideas of the Kabbalah and finally gives up his philosophical interests altogether, developing instead a truly astonishing genius for mystical homiletics. Indeed, half a millennium had to elapse before Jewish literature was again able to show anything comparable, for such is the author of these most important parts of the Zohar, no redactor or collector but a homiletic genius. It was Kabbalah as it had developed before his time and having become his spiritual home which he with unexpected and impressive power constructed from out of the text of scripture and the ancient Haggadic Haggadic motifs oh, I'm sorry ancient Haggadic motifs of the Midrash Thus, although his world of thought and concept was not novel, his mystical sources were by no means forgotten tomes and apocrypha from obscure centuries. They were the literature of the Kabbalah to the time of Moses ben Naaman, 1195 through 1270 A.D., and his circle, a literature which has been in large part preserved and is today quite well known. The manner in which this Sohar's author's mystical world was constructed reveals to us very precisely the only period of time in which he is to be correctly placed in the development of the Kabbalah. In addition to which a whole series of linguistic and factual criteria quite independent of one another point to exactly the same time. It was certainly around 1280 that these main parts of the Zohar were composed in Spain by a Kabbalist who had not seen Palestine. In ever new guises and externally different liter literary and stylistic forms, this work erupts from an author who seems to have deeply experienced his conversion to Kabbalism. But in spite of all the masks which he is fond of putting on, in spite of all the masks which he is fond of putting on, the inner form and the personal style are always identical. 
But what about these masks? What about this whole Galilean landscape which dissolves into unreality and Rabbi Simeon ben Yochai, his family and friends and all the other trappings of a Midrash-like finery in which the author seems to find no such no much to find I'm sorry in which the author seems to find so much pleasure as if enjoying himself in the play of fantasy this flight into pseudonymity and romantic backdrop evoked in the critical writings of the 19th century a literary excitement angry attacks and moralistic condemnation as well as a circumspect and sometimes vociferous apologetic which seems to us today to have been considerably exaggerated. For a long time we have known that literary forgeries represent a flight into anonymity and pseudonymity just as often as they indicate trickery, and not for nothing have we, have we retained the foreign word pseudepigrapha to designate, an, to designate in particular a legitimate category of religious literature by a term devoid of the moralistic undertone of reprobation which echoes in the English word forgery. Important documents of our religious literature are in this sense forgeries, also the mystical literature which the author of the Zohar may have read consisted to a considerable extent of earlier pseudepigrapha. And I'll leave it there because I want to read from Scripture. And the Scripture verse that the Lord has led me to is in Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. Jerusalem to be attacked. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. 
In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo is the name of the plain in, in Israel that we call, I think it's in Israel, that, that we get the, the word Armageddon from. Armageddon means it's uh, the last battle that takes place in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan, or Nathan, by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. And the next chapter is chapter 13. It's called False Prophets Ashamed. False Prophets Ashamed. So I encourage you to read the book of Zechariah. Zechariah clearly states in, in verse 10 of chapter 12, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will look on me. God is saying they will look on me whom they have pierced. Speaking because it is Jesus Christ who is the one speaking, the one who is pierced, the one who is pierced and nailed, the, 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 because his, the nails were driven into his hands and feet, and a spear was pierced into his side, into his rib, into his rib. And the very, the very place where God took Eve out from Adam and gave him a partner, Christ Jesus was pierced in the heart or in the pericardium in his ribs under his ribs the place where uh, the place where the, the second Adam died he died for us and for our sins and they have pierced so the spirit of grace and supplication so that 
so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, because it is God's only son, God's begotten son, God's only begotten son, and he mourned, God mourned for the death of his only begotten son. And so in the, in the last days, in the last days, so too will others mourn. Uh, will those who, who see the one that we have pe- pierced mourn for the way that God mourned over his only begotten son? So thank you for, for um, tuning in and uh, not tuning out. Hopefully you didn't tune out. <laughs> I'm tuning out right now. And God bless you. Good night.